Hi everyone, and welcome back to Terry Talks Fiction. It's been a little while since the first episode, and I began to realise that this was looking dangerously close to becoming one of those podcasts that updates a single episode and then you never hear from them again. Fear not, fair listener, for not only is there a new episode of Terry Talks Fiction coming out today, but I can also point you towards a copy of the university assignment I had been completing over the last two weeks consisting of a YouTube video which stars myself and my two small children going over some of the finer points of Patreon and in particular the minor internet scandal that erupted over a change to its fee policies at the start of December in 2017. You can find that over at YouTube searching for Patreonizing the public or by following the link that I'm including in the show notes below. The video was a lot of fun to do, as well as being a part of my assessment for uni, so I really do hope that you'll go over and give it a check out. You'll see much more of me than you probably anticipated, but hopefully you'll get a laugh in the process. And, following in the spirit of university assignments, I'd like to present another one to you today, in the form of a short piece of original fiction that I wrote for an assignment last year, as part of one of my literary studies subjects. If you've been over to terrytalksfiction.wordpress.com, you may have already seen this work as it is presented there in its written form, but the audio format gives something a bit different, and I'd like to also speak a little bit more about it following the story itself, similar to the way I reflected on it in the written prose, but from a slightly different angle again. I'll talk a little bit more at the end concerning things like the approach I took what the requirements were for this particular assignment, and why I'm presenting it here now. But there are two things that you'll need to know about this piece going in. Firstly, it's very short, only about 2,300 words. The entire assignment for which this was written had a cap of 3,000 words, 700 of which had to be an exegesis reflecting on the creative fiction. That brevity has really impacted the scope and the style of the story presented. Secondly, and possibly most importantly, this assignment was focused on creatively displaying an interpretation of two literary theories in fiction, Marxism and structuralism. You might be able to pick out some of the obvious ways that things like class structures and adherence to rule structures impacts this narrative, but again, I'll talk more about that towards the end. For now, please sit back and relax grab a cuppa, and I hope you'll enjoy this rendition of The Arrogance of Barnabas. Barnabas opened his eyes to absolute darkness. He ran a thick tongue across his two dry lips and pushed himself to his knees. The ground cracked beneath his hands, shards tinkling like glass in the otherwise oppressive silence. His head pounded with a fury he had not known in decades. Instinctively, he reached inside himself to draw from his reserved magical power and cure the sensation. He found nothing there. The stifling heat around him seemed to vanish in an instant, banished by the freezing terror that gripped his chest. He leapt to his feet, heedless of his safety in the dark, and staggered from the physical effort. His legs were weak, his breathing fast. Again he reached for the power to steady himself, and again he found nothing, just emptiness. 
No! In a rush, memory returned to his throbbing mind. The jewel, the sorceress Elandra soaring above him, raining down fire and fury. An unexpected, suicidally foolish gambit. A split second to react, the magical shield he had thrown up, maintained even as the very ground around him had exploded and bubbled. The rising heat within, his surge of power to cool the earth around him, and then... Darkness. He had passed out. Alone. He roared a wordless cry of horror into the darkness, then collapsed to his knees as a fit of coughing racked his parched throat. The fit turned into laughter, then to sobs. He couldn't even summon a drink of water. A sorcerer without magic. By any definition, a dead sorcerer. How had he survived? He ran his hand across the crystalline floor and listened to the musical sound as fragments broke away under his touch. The ground sloped upwards in all directions. Of course, his reflexive action as Elantra bombarded him was what saved his life. The molten ground had solidified around his shield as he cooled it, creating a perfectly formed sphere of silicate lava. Perhaps it protected him still, though if the ground beyond the rock had not cooled down as well, it surely would have baked him while he slept. While he had slept, the very thought of it was horrifying. How long had it been since he had slept freely, with no acolytes to wake him after his half-hour cycle? How much debt had his body incurred from years of adhering to the tightly controlled polyphasic schedule that enabled him to function on only two hours sleep per day? Too much. He had slept until everything he had, everything he was, had drained away. He rubbed a hand across his forehead, collecting the droplets of sweat, and squeezed his temples. His head hurt. Had he hit it when he passed out? It was intolerable. He, of all people, feeling pain. The Grand Master of the Academy. Ah, uh, Elantra, what had possessed her to challenge him to a duel? She hadn't even progressed beyond a five-nap cycle. It was inconceivable she could have gathered enough magic to take his position, not at her age. The darkness pressed in around him, reminding him how wrong he was. He needed to get out. He needed his head to stop hurting. The pain, the heat, were too oppressive. He couldn't think properly. He sat, fussing with his dueling robes in the darkness. He crossed his legs and slowed his breathing. The heat and the pain made it difficult to focus. He almost thought it was worse now than when he had woken only a few minutes ago. He frowned and concentrated on aligning his mind. Focus. It should be easier than this. He had just awoken from the longest sleep he'd had in years. Surely he was refreshed, renewed, able to focus. Instead, his thoughts leapt about his mind like a lamb newly shorn. <sighs> leapt? Why had she leapt above him like that? It was ridiculous. He was older. The acolytes he'd trained had kept him at the pinnacle of polyphasic sleep for years. More time for him to collect magic and next to no time without the conscious control required to hold it. He was never going to run out of power before she did, no matter what she threw at him. He could just keep feeding his shield until her magical power was spent. His shield! 
by the power, that was it. He'd thrown it up so quickly, he'd had no time to shape it. It had assumed the only shape nature would allow, a bubble. The magical walls of the shield were by their nature impermeable, and the smooth, hardened lava surrounding him now must be equally so. That was why he couldn't focus. That's why his head pounded, why it felt hotter with every breath. He struggled to think, to calculate. The sphere would have been, what, three or four metres in diameter? Even the acolyte was taught the importance of considering how much air you trapped inside a magical shield. A bubble this size should have given him maybe 15 hours of survivable atmosphere? How long had he slept? He fought to control his breathing again. He was going to die. No. Enough. Focus. His breathing slowed. His head still pounded. He ignored it. Sweat trickled down the back of his neck. He ignored it. He began to draw. He had never been more thankful that magic emanated from all things. Even through the wall of his self-built tomb it wafted, as inexorable and inescapable as gravity. He aligned his mind along those currents, using the force of his will, the temper of his focus, to divert that current inwards, to the mental reservoir he pictured there. Once that reservoir had brimmed with power, now it yawned in his mind like an abyss, hungry to be filled. The magic poured in. A paltry trickle compared to the torrent he had commanded only a day before, but it energised him all the same. He was not dead. He was not empty. He was going to live. As always, he lost track of time as he guided the shifting flows of magic into himself. He swayed, following the strongest currents from where he sat until he leaned too far and overbalanced. He fell and smashed the side of his face into the rock. Splinters of stone pierced his cheek. He barely felt them, barely felt anything at all. Now that his focus was broken, the full force of his headache, of the heat in the room, slammed back into his awareness. He gasped and felt his lungs burning. The shock was almost enough for him to let go of his hold on the magic he had collected, but he held on with dogged determination. He couldn't afford to start bleeding magic. He was going to need every bit he'd collected. He oriented himself in the darkness and, facing straight up, he loosed everything towards the apex of the sphere. The dueling arena was eerily quiet when Barnabas pulled himself from the cracked ground like some ragged golem being born from the earth. He collapsed on his back and stared into the darkness above him, this time the free darkness of the night sky. His head still pounded, his lips were torn, and his robes were stained with sweat and blood. Climbing out of the pit through the hole he'd blasted had been incredibly physical, especially for someone who avoided exertion as a rule. He was exhausted. All he wanted to do was... And in that moment, he understood how Alandra had beaten him. Magic to the body was like fat. You stored it naturally, but by your actions, you could increase or reduce that amount you stored. Unlike fat, which reduces with exercise and increases with indolence, magic required constant focus, a kind of mental exercise that channeled and stored it. As soon as your focus stopped, those stores began to drain away. 
He had built his career around that principle, on refining the methods of polyphasic sleep passed down by master after master before him, a constant battle to minimise the time spent unconscious, to limit the drain. But it had come at a price. He always trod the line of utter exhaustion. Without his acolytes to rouse him from his naps, without the position of grandmaster to ensure he had the leisure to be sedate in his movements throughout the day, he would have collapsed long ago from the physical toll that reduced sleep exacted on the body. He'd expected her to be playing by those same rules. He'd expected her, like the previous challenges he'd faced, to be maintaining a careful balance between focus and exhaustion to avoid anything that would tip her over the edge. To chip away at him with her magical reserves and hope that she could sustain them longer than he. But she had never been trying to deplete his reserves of magic at all. When she had leapt above him and released the full force of her power, she had been trying to run out his reserves of simple, mundane energy. To wear him down and force his body to collect on the sleep debt it had incurred. And she had. She had zipped around him like a crazed wildcat, forcing him to scramble for purchase as she blasted the ground from underneath him in location after location after location. Forcing him to throw up and maintain that shield had been the final straw. He picked himself up from the blackened, melted sand around his crater and looked across a moonlit scene of destruction and despair. The bodies of sorcerers littered the dueling arena twisted at grotesque angles and trailing burst innards across a network of crystalline blast zones. He staggered from corpse to corpse, not to check for other survivors, a sorcerer had no friends, but to mark which of his rivals had been killed in the fighting. He did not find the body of Elantra anywhere. It was inconceivable that she could have survived. Such carnage as this only happened when one or more sorcerers anticipated an easy victory over the depleted contender of a duel and attacked, only to be attacked by a fellow rival in turn. Such displays had been the end of academies, as sorcerers from neighbouring city-states moved into the power vacuum left by the death of so many senior advisors. But perhaps it was not impossible that she had lived through the chaos. He had, after all. He shook his head as he crouched over the final corpse. Concern over Elantra was immaterial at this point. He needed to attend to his own survival. He couldn't return to the academy, not without regaining his power first. But without an acolyte to wake him when he slept, he would be trapped in a monophasic sleep cycle, doomed to lose any power he had gathered whenever he collapsed into sleep, no better than a peasant day wizard treating cattle and growing crops. Of course, peasants paid for such services, even when they were famously poor. A whole village could rally to afford the care of a milking cow. What community would refuse his services for no greater price than a meal and a promise to shake him awake at odd hours? With a thin smile, he stood. He needed to put as much distance between himself and the academy before someone discovered the hole he had crawled out of. He began to walk, turning his back on the institution, but not, he vowed, for long. So that was the arrogance of Barnabas. 
As I said in the beginning, there's a few points I want to hit in the reflective part of this podcast. Overall, I'm pretty happy with the way this story turned out. Obviously, there's always room for improvement, but insofar as fulfilling the requirements of the assignment that I had, I think it achieves those points relatively well. There's some pretty clear structures in it, class structure within the academy, class structure within the general society, and I think through the power struggle between this upstart sorceress Elantra and the established leader Barnabas, and his later reflection on the difference between the academy and these peasant day wizards, I think that also indicates fairly well that there is a concentration of power to a select few and a, a disenfranchised majority, which is a, a very Marxist kind of ideal. Similarly, I'm fairly happy with the way that I developed the magic system in this to work around some pretty clear rules. I think it's pretty clear that uh, the magic is related directly to the amount of sleep one gets. It's actually funny because when I was sitting down trying to write the magic system, I knew the things that it had to do. I knew it had to have a fairly strict rule structure and I knew that it had to be creative enough to, to work in the context. But at the time, I was just too tired. I couldn't think of anything. So jokingly to myself, I thought I should make the magic system about being you know, bloody well tired. And then I sort of started thinking about what that might look like. And it was an interesting experiment to push my creativity in that direction. Try to come up with something, once I'd established that was the setting for it, try to come up with the rules as to why it worked that way. And I sort of came to realise that the key is not how tired you are, but perhaps why the magic makes you tired or why you have to be tired to be better at the magic and when i started thinking in that direction i came up with the idea for the idea you have to be conscious to be able to not only use magic but to be able to retain the magic that you have collected i think that came out to be a fairly creative perspective on structuralism and that was just reinforced even more by coming up with the idea of using the established real-world strategies of polyphasic sleep as a set of rules by which one could game the magic system, whilst also sort of grounding that shortcut in something that we would understand from the real world. And I think that also segues into using the elements of the way we understand physics and the way we understand certain natural processes to reinforce the magic elements of the world. Certainly we can't create uh, force fields with our minds and using magic, but there, there's established physics principles of uh, things like why certain things default to bubble shapes instead of square shapes. And of course, importantly and fairly central to the story, the way that if you're enclosed in an airtight room, you've only got a certain amount of time before you run out of breathable air and suffocate yourself in your own carbon dioxide. Which itself segues into one of the things that I'm not unhappy with, not terribly happy with, but fairly ambivalent about, and that is the wizard in a box sort of scenario that this uh, whole thing is structured around. I think that for this story, for the purpose for which it was written, it works fine. I'm not convinced that my back of the napkin mathematics was accurate in guessing how long Barnabas has to spend in that 
tiny little room, but I suspect that for the majority of readers it probably passes muster. It's one of those things that were I in the position to try rewriting this or to try just sending it out uh, as is, I would want to run it through a beta reader first, someone who has knowledge and expertise in that area and who might be able to take one look at it and go well this is completely wrong or maybe you want to tweak this or that but there's a very good reason why that's not going to happen and why I'm not going to be working on this anymore I'm not going to try to polish it up to what I feel would be submission level quality and that all comes back down to the purpose for which the story was written this is a good story in an academic context when it's been graded on a curve against the other people writing in the cohort. I'm not convinced that this story would be particularly good on the commercial market. And I'm sure there's probably a flash fiction outlet somewhere on the internet, somewhere on the globe that would publish a piece like this. But I think the main problem that it has getting away from what I was happy with and into analyzing some of the things that don't quite work, there's no real sense of character in this. Barnabas really only exists in this story as a vehicle to explain the magic and social systems of the world. We don't really get to know anything about him. We don't have no idea what he looks like, uh, how he feels to have lost this jewel. We, we know that he's in physical pain, but we don't really, we don't really get into why this was important for him. What real impact the loss of his position has on his psyche. And we don't really get a proper sense of the stakes personally that he has in this situation. We don't know why Elijah challenged him to this duel. We can sort of assume it was a bit of a power play, but for what purpose? What has he been doing in his position of power that she thinks that she can do better? Or does she just want to be the woman at the top? Is she trying to enact social change? Does the fact that she's a woman make a difference to him? Does the fact that she's so young make a difference to him? And who else lives in this world besides the sorcerers, the day wizards and the peasantry? And even if we did get a bit more examination of Barnabas's character, there's still no real personal arc for him in this story. Uh, he realises why he lost the duel that occurred before the story began. But we don't really get a sense of whether he's learned anything from that. He's sort of he's going to walk off and try to reclaim his power. Well, what's he going to do with that once he gets it? Is he just going to come back to the academy? Is he just going to go somewhere else and try to get to the top of their tree? I just didn't really have the time in the 2300 words allotted for the fiction element of this assignment to start exploring that sort of thing which I would really like to see if I was trying to put this out for submission and instead of going through and trying to edit this up to a standard or trying to include those things in I feel it's probably more valuable to me to be able to sit back and critically look at this piece understand what's working and where it's working understand what could be improved and using it as a an example on this podcast and as an example on my personal website 
being sure to establish and reference the context in which this piece was written, I think has more value to me as a writer than trying to send it out somewhere and get it published in some sort of market. Perhaps I'm wrong about that, and if you feel really strongly that I am, please, please make sure you drop that in the comments. But I think I've taken up enough of your time now. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I hope that you did find something to enjoy in the story. And if you do have any thoughts on it, you think you pick up on something that I haven't noted here that could have been done better, or something that you particularly liked, or even if you do have the knowledge required to calculate the volume of air in a three meter diameter sphere, and how quickly the average human being at rest would blow through their uh, oxygen slash carbon dioxide supply, then please let me know and drop that in the comments as well. I'd be fascinated to find if I was anywhere close to uh, the correct answer. And while you're talking to me, I'll be thinking of what I'm going to talk to you next. At this stage, it's a bit of a toss up between looking at uh, Brandon Sanderson's latest entry in the Way of Kings novels, Oathbringer. I've got a few thoughts on how he, in that series, how he's been integrating elements from the Cosmia, I guess his version of the, uh, the Marvel movies, how they, everything sort of crosses over with each other. It's certainly something that's uh, fairly ripe and juicy for having a, a dig into. Or looking at the latest entry in Brent Weeks's Black Prism series, which was fascinating to me because it's a series I really, really got into with the first few books, but the latest book that came out had a different effect on me. So I'll talk about both of them at some point, but if there's one that you want to hear in particular, then uh, again, let me know in the comments below or on Twitter, at TCMacManus, and I'll be certain to take that under advisement with the next episode of Terry Talks Fiction, and I look forward to talking to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Terry Talks Fiction. For more podcasts, reflections, and reviews, visit www.terrytalksfiction.wordpress.com. We'll talk again soon.